Welcome to Between Two Chairs, Demystifying Commercial Real Estate, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and trends on the South Florida commercial real estate market with your hosts, Fernando Arencivia Jr. and Jennifer Woolman. In each episode, we dive into the world of commercial real estate and break down complex concepts to make them accessible for everyone. Whether you're a real estate professional, a curious investor, or just interested in the South Florida market in general, Between Two Chairs is the podcast for you. So pull up a chair and join us. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Between Two Chairs. Uh, We just want to say as we're entering, I think this will be our fifth or sixth uh, podcast that we put out there that seventh, seventh? this will be our seventh. Um, okay. Wow. I, that's unbelievable. Number seven. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we, we are so, uh, humbled by the kind words, uh, people have mentioned about the podcast and, you know, all of those that have reached out, it's been really fun and we really enjoy doing it. So, Let's jump right in. So in our last podcast, we were talking about qualifying a user and what kind of questions we asked. And we kind of got to the point where, okay, now we had qualified them and figured out more or less where they needed to be. And so it seemed clear to us that this episode had to be all about location, 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 the three most famous and probably most overused words in real estate, but true. So What do you do once you've narrowed your qualifying questions, once you've figured out kind of what they're looking for, where they need to be for demographics, et cetera? Well, I I think definitely, you know, it is the the first thing you learn in real estate, right, is location, location, location. It's incredibly important. And what I really love about commercial real estate is that you can really get down to understanding an area and all of the economic factors that make it so strong down to a granular level. And when we look at data, there are different ways of looking at it. You know, one way is to obviously look at the macroeconomic data uh, worldwide. Then you're looking at what's happening in our hemisphere, what's happening in our country, what's happening in our state or city. Where I think agents and brokers can add a lot of value is in that hyper-local data, right? It's really knowing the local market. I love, absolutely love when I get an assignment to create a plan of action to attract a number of properties to an area, right? Or or to or or an acquisition strategy for that area. And where I start is really in the zoning map. Because I, I want to understand the dynamic of where the growth patterns are in the city and where the opportunities are. So I started doing this first in Little Havana. And, you know, I looked at the zoning map and this is a few years after the city of Miami had transferred from the old 1100 code to the Miami 21 code, which was a lot more forward thinking jinx in us. And what I really got to understand is what is it that makes it attractive to invest in multifamily in Little Havana? And so when you look at the zoning map, you basically have an area that is surrounded by where the highest density is within Little Havana. Really, the highest density in Little Havana is no more than 12 stories, right? It's T6120. And funny enough, is one of the areas that was not the first to develop, which is on Flagler Street, you know, between the river and about 12th, 13th Avenue. 
The area that really gets all the attention is H Street, Calle Ocho, right? It has that flavor. It has, you know, this entertainment district component. It has iconic places like the Tower Theater and you have Domino Park. But when you look at that, the zoning there is really a T68, meaning you could only go eight stories. So the, the bulk of the real the real heavy zoning occurs, you know, on Flagler Street, closer to the river um, on the other side of downtown. But what is it that is attractive about it? Number one, you're surrounded by major centers of employment because you have the health district where Jackson is, which right, is right across the river. Right across the river. You have all the service jobs that are occurring in downtown and in Brickell. Of course, you also have, you know, you're you're very close to the financial district, but the bulk of the tenancies that are in those multifamily are blue-collar workers, and they are very close to those major centers of employment. The other side of it is you have major modes of transportation, right? A lot of a lot of the tenants don't have cars, but they find that because of the frequency of the public trans- transit system that is very much concentrated in that area, that makes it a very attractive place for them to live. And so when you start looking at those patterns, then you start seeing, okay, they they purposely decided to create these sort of like business corridors that were connected to the transit-oriented development. You have proximity to all of these important aspects of the economic life of an area. And now you decide that the other part is, of course, do we have enough product where it makes sense to execute an acquisition strategy. And so we found out that that Little Havana area is one of the oldest areas in Miami, right? You have a lot of 1925 product, right? Well, let, let's backtrack a little bit. Sure. We were talking about an acquisition strategy, but you didn't yeah. say for what, and this was for multifamily, right? Or for, you might for, have said it, but right. I, yeah. I just wanted to reiterate it again because right. we went again out exactly. into what you look for. So back, right. so and if multifamily. I'm, and to go even further back, what I have to clarify is that you got to let the area speak to you. So what we found is that that is the bulk of the product type that is in that area of Little Havana. By the way, Little Havana has that thing where people tell you, uh, when you ask brokers, what is Little Havana? You get different answers. People sometimes go all the way to 37th Avenue because that's where the world famous Versailles Cafe is. Right. Right. Some people say uh, you got to go to 27th and, and beyond. And then some other people are like, no, no, Little Havana is really 17th Avenue. And so when we were executing this strategy, we went from 17th Avenue to the river and we went north Northwest 7th Street, Flagler through Southwest 8th Street. So in that area, what we found out is there was also product that was built in the 1960s and 70s, another you know building boom. And we found out that there were 276 of these buildings that were available in that in that area, based on the proximity to downtown and Brickell, based on the surrounding areas of, of major centers of employment, based on the transit corridors and all of the life that is in Calle Ocho, right? And, 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 and that brings another element to it. Then we decided that would be a great place uh, to invest. And, uh, and then you start to execute a strategy. But I love looking at zoning maps. I really do because I I I put myself well. First of all, you're right. I'm an absolute nerd, but I like the idea of you know. I always try to envision what is it that they intended to create. I don't know that the 1100 code was very intentional, but I know for a fact that Miami 21 code was very intentional. Right, Miami 21 was very intentional, and I think and I think Miami 21 the people who who really were the founders of that, Plater, Plater's Iberg. They 
they really, I I almost think that they looked at existing areas of our city, like Coral Gables, like Little Havana, like Coconut Grove, to see what was working, what created such a huge sense of community in those local areas. And then they kind of said, okay, how can we recreate that in areas where it doesn't exist? And how can we preserve it in areas where it either preserve or make it better in areas where it does exist. So it was very intentional. I think they did, uh, I think they did a great job. And I think that's partially what has really helped with the development also of like Wynwood and preserving that, even though we're losing a lot of the character of Wynwood because it was just old kind of rundown warehouses. Now it's transforming a little bit, but it's not becoming just a huge extension of Brickell and downtown with huge high rises because the Miami 21 planning and what they did in zoning really did help preserve a character that allowed for not only public transportation, but easy walkability, bringing in the right mix of businesses, having a nice balance within the community. So I think they, I think they did a really good job of that. And, but, and, and, and some of those things, because you, you speak about um, walkability Large segments of our city suffer from lack of canopy, from, you know, streets that are not really intentionally created for walkability. And one of the things, like if you go up and down that H Street corridor and you go all the way to 67th Avenue and beyond, you see that a lot of a lot of shopping centers, they build the shopping centers where the parking is in the area that gives the most exposure, you know, to to the streets. And so, you know, you almost have to like look beyond the parking to see what kind of business is there. That's why you have all these pylons. Right. What what happens is, and that was one of the changes in the zoning code, is that if you put the shopping center abutting the main thoroughfare and you have the parking in the back, now you have immediate exposure, but it also gives you an opportunity to create canopy so that when you're walking is through there, right. the cars are in the back. And that little that little change makes a huge difference for for what you're trying to create. And I think that when planning is done right and purposeful, they're not planning for today. They're not planning for five years from now, 10 years. They're planning for the future. You know, they're looking a long ways. They know that a lot of these properties are going to stay the way they are until they get redeveloped. They understand that once they get redeveloped with the new code, it'll be a, a different scenario. So that's that's me. That's I, I love to look at a zoning code. I love to really get a grasp of where I am and the value of that property, of the zoning within that property in comparison to its neighboring properties. What do you look for in location when you're when you're addressing that? And especially when a client is asking, I want to be here, but I know that you're the kind of person that would ask them, well, why do you want to be there? What is it that you really want to? Right. And that's kind of why I start with the qualifying questions, um, because especially people that are coming down here, or even people who have lived here for a while, they have a concept in their head of this is what this neighborhood is but then when you really get into the numbers or the demographics that they need for their specific use or their specific business they realize they need to be somewhere else right and I think I might have touched on it when we had somebody relocating from New York they thought they wanted to be in Brickell because there were other similar companies in Brickell but then when I asked them what was most important to them as a company it was their it was their employees and I said, well, where do you think most of, you know, what's the demographic of your employees? Who are you trying to attract? And what is their biggest pain point? And their biggest pain point was how much they travel. And they were coming from New York. So they didn't really want to be in the high rise in the cities and everything. So 
we found them, they thought they wanted to be in Brickle. So I showed them obviously a lot of stuff in Brickle, but based on my qualifying questions, my gut told me that they really needed to be and wanted to be in the cables. And that's where they ended up. And like two years later, they said, our employees are so happy because they travel a lot and they are within 15 minutes of the airport from our office and from where they live. So they love that because coming from New York, they were within an hour or more from the airport. So they were spending a ton of time going back and forth. So yeah, I had to look at zoning related to, you know, was there use, this was an office use. So it was pretty clear where they needed to be. Yeah. But I use zoning, for example, I had um, a distillery, we helped locate a distillery. And so I knew that they needed to be, you know, the zoning had to be industrial, but then there were additional limits. Like you have to be, you know, they had limits as to how close you could be to a church, how close you could be to an elementary school, mm. how close you could be to residential area. So even within an allowed zoning, if that industrial zone was too close to schools or residential, or if it didn't have the sewer and water capacity that they mm. required, then they couldn't right. be there. So it was a lot of exactly. digging. And again, so I, you know, I can see your love for the big zoning map, you know, in the, in the big picture. Yeah. I, I don't use that as much because mine is more site specific, but right. I can see why you would love seeing an overview of an area. And I think if I were to go and look at real estate in another area, that's definitely where I would start, right? An area that I'm not familiar with. I yeah. think I would definitely start with the zoning map just to get an idea of the layout and yeah. and zoning maps are weird, right? Like you can have, I mean, there's a building here in Pinecrest where it looks like it's all one building and it's really four folios and it's got three different zonings, even yeah. though it looks like it's one building. Right. So if I assume <laughs> that this one parcel right. was zoned the same as the end parcel, I'd be totally wrong, right? So it's Absolutely. really bizarre how, how zoning works. That kind of goes to your planning. Like, I don't know how much they really plan what's yeah. in the future and yeah. how much just kind of gets yeah. changed along the way. Yeah. But Well, you know, it's interesting because this morning we were at the commercial marketplace and somebody was asking that mm -hmm. question, well, is it true that if my neighbor is building a 12-story you know, building, then I should, by right, have the ability to do this? That's a very interesting dynamic that you really have to get into the nitty-gritty of what that zoning code and what, what the requirements are for you to have a certificate of use. That just because you have a property that looks like uh, it has one intended use, that, that doesn't mean that you can use it. And the difference between what I'm discussing and what you're discussing is that I'm looking at it from the point of view of an investor that's trying to invest in an area and is looking for where is the viability economically of that area, right? right? You're looking about the usability of that individual property and the benefits that it provides to the intended user, right? Well, like the demographics. So if I, if I were a little local shop owner and my demographic was blue collar service worker, right? I wouldn't want to be in Brickle necessarily, or I wouldn't right. want to be in, you know, so exactly. that, that, so I always look at it from, from that side. Yeah. I, I told this story this morning about, so I represented a client with a warehouse across from the Miami river and warehouse was built many, many years ago. It's surrounded by on the other side where you have the water. Of course you have all of the Marine, you know, D1 designation. And then, but in here, this was changed with the Miami zoning code to a T50 structure. And what happens, which is what a lot of people don't understand, and this is why, why 
when my client asked me, I want to lease this warehouse, right? We want to activate it. It had been vacant for, for quite some time. They had a tenant there for 14 years that decided to leave. And when I'm doing the, the analysis, I'm looking for the certificate of use. Why? Because I knew that there had been a zoning change. So normally when you do a zoning change, your certificate of use is grandfathered, grandfathered in. That's especially the case with Miami 21. As long as a certificate of use from the city was renewed, then you could continue to use it for that intended purposes. But the tenant that was there had not renewed the uh, certificate of use. And once it lapses for a year, then you have to abide by the new code. So even though this property was a warehouse, looked like a warehouse, was functioning as a warehouse, right? It cannot be anything other than a warehouse. Nobody could get a certificate of use to utilize it for that purpose. As a warehouse. Because as a warehouse zoning, because right? of the upzoning. And so that's where the hyper-local data and that information is so important. And why I think we get so excited about commercial real estate because you have to touch upon so many things and you learn so many things, you know, right. along the way. And in addition to zoning affecting location, right? Yeah. Just because people say location, 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 but what is a great location for me isn't a great location for you Correct. based on your vision, your specific requirements, the type of market you're trying to attract, True. et cetera, or your asset class. Yeah. So you're also reminding me of something that there's a local developer that we both know, Andrew Frey, who developed um, a project called Tesela, which eventually became a, a short-term rental in Little Havana right off of 8th Avenue. And I remember that the marketing, when they were doing the, uh, the, when they were breaking ground and they're doing a ceremony was that Little Havana was the amenity, mm -hmm. right? And I think there was the approach of, well, the amenity is the fact that you're in an area that is vibrant is an area that is very local that it has its own flavor you know all those things and then that's another interesting part about location you could get very hyper specific about when you're looking at location you're looking at the building itself you're looking at the qualities of the building but then especially for employers they got to look at what amenities are surrounding my building that are going to add value to entice employees to not only want to work with us and want to be in this location and want to show up but that it enhances their, their lifestyle as well. And those those aspects are very important. The, and I think that every area has its own set of amenities that sometimes we don't speak about it. Right. You know, when you go to North Beach, you're you're close to the water. You're, you don't have the hustle and bustle of South Beach. But it's also, which a lot of people don't talk about, it's a very foodie area. There's a lot of right. great restaurants. Right. There's a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a life there that has a, a streak of its own by the way when you look at the zoning map in north beach and in, in miami beach and little havana you'd be surprised how, how much yes is. correct yeah. and, that, and that's where you drive right. through them, and you drive through them the right same feel. it's the yeah, same very garden feel. style two-story right. building small scale right. you know lots and i of, think that street level retail exactly yeah. so yeah. i i think that's important now the other aspect of this, right, is that location is predicated upon what we're discussing intended use. And so, for example, someone that's looking for industrial is going to look at location totally different than somebody looking at multifamily or retail. And of course, you know, in industrial, they want to be someone that needs heavy industrial use wants to be surrounded by heavy industrial use, right? They don't right. want to deal with they don't want the neighbor complaining. They don't about want the neighbor complaining and the smells. Correct. And the, yeah. They they want to be close to major major highways, right? 
They, you know, because for them, they're, they're, they're timing out, especially they're in distribution, they're timing out how long is it going to take for me to get, you know, back and forth because every trip is, is, is an expense and every trip is, is revenue that they're generating. Then there's the, the aspects of the location, you know, the ingress and egress to the building, you know, dock high doors, things of, things of that nature that are really specific to it, but it is the surrounding ecosystem, right? That you create. And that's why you have some areas that are very heavy, you know, industrial. And that's why sometimes the zoning code shows that, okay, this is where we're going to put that level of zoning and, and why that is important. Right. Far away from housing where we're going to get complaints and everything else, even though eventually I think all of that does get changed because look at all of the residential housing you have next yeah. to landfills and wastewater treatment plants. And it wasn't like that before. And even, even in Wynwood, they still have that active cement plant there in, right. in downtown Wynwood, surrounded yeah. now by residences and yeah. very high-end restaurants and everything else. And that yeah. little cement company is still... No doubt. I like the opponent of it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's never right. really a one-size-fits-all. Right. in real estate is. And also, I think that there's a lot of forward-thinking projects that we're seeing around the country where they're mixing <laughs> retail with industrial right. with a housing component right. and they're they're just kind of stacking it and i think it's this idea that <laughs> we've developed a lot of distribution centers you know mostly by amazon right we're used to getting things within an hour and so people have always discussed this idea of what if you build upon a distribution center right, right. and now all you have to do is go downstairs yeah. and pick up the package and that you bought you know in 20 minutes yeah. and we've seen projects that are on their way that mix those things and you know, we'll see how successful they are, but those things are, are really forward thinking things and jinx again, Ines. So- uh, You like her hashtag. <laughs> I do, absolutely. Alrighty, so- Listen, I, I, another one, is this one also in the can? So before we go, let's share our stat, our which is fact. our fun fact or stat, uh, you know, just so a little additional insight. You want me to start? Yeah, you start. So one of the things that I found interesting, we were doing a presentation just to kind of give everybody an update in this venue on the commercial market in our in Miami. And one of the things that I came across that I thought was very interesting to share, especially because, you know, we, we started talking a little bit about multifamily, Little Havana, things like that, is that we know that the, the rents have increased significantly in Miami, but... Everything is the perspective that you give it. In other words, you you got to have perspective. And in order to have perspective, you got to see how they compare to other areas. So what I found interesting is that there are 57 other major markets in the United States where the rents are higher than in Miami. And so talk about location. If you're in Miami, you're seeing increases in rent, right? You're seeing that the cost of living is going up. If you are in one of those 57 major areas, you're looking at Miami as a bargain, mm -hmm. you know, and and that adds to this huge wave of migration that we have in Miami. But I, I thought it was interesting to have that perspective. I don't think that a lot of people thought that it would be 57 major markets around the country. Right. And I think it's interesting, though, because to your point, that's not what we're hearing. You know, that's what you found and that's what we found. But what the news narrative is that Miami is the most expensive place to live. And I think that we discussed that the reason is because as a local in Miami, our wages haven't caught up to the wages of people migrating here that are working remotely. So yeah. then that 
news narrative does does make sense. But the reality is, is that to those no. people from coming from those markets, we're still way more affordable than where they're coming from. So mine was also Miami-based, and it was that Miami was ranked as the best city in the U.S. for foreign multinationals by the Financial Times and Nikkei, and as the best market in North America for foreign direct investment by World Business Magazine. And I think that's interesting because most people, when they think of Miami, they think of, you know, our beaches and everything else, nightlife and the restaurants and our beautiful water and the reality is, is that there are 34 municipalities in Miami-Dade County, plus neighborhoods in the unincorporated area. So Miami-Dade County itself is huge. So when you get these rankings, you know, they're they're talking about Miami, yes, the city, but also Miami-Dade County as a whole. And to our to wrap it up into the location, location, location within Miami, we have so many different neighborhoods that we really do have a location for everybody, whether you like the beach, whether you like the farmland, whether you like suburbs or agricultural or super um, high density urban living, we've got it all. I completely agree. It's interesting what that you say that because, uh, you know, we, we're coming up on Formula One weekend in Miami. This will be the second Formula One race. I'm a huge fan. Uh, I'm so sorry I'm going to be missing it because of uh, the trip to D.C., but kudos to Miami Gardens, which is a municipality in Miami. Every time that there is an event at Hard Rock Stadium, every time that there is a Dolphin game, people talk about South Beach and Miami. It, it's pretty it's far. <laughs> it's pretty Miami far from Gardens South Beach. People. But kudos to Miami Gardens who really uh, stepped up and put together um, an amazing you know, event. An amazing yeah. event. And so, you know, really, really excited for this uh, second of 10 year uh, run for uh, Formula One, which last year was the, the most well attended and the highest grossing Formula One race in the entire world. So good he, had to get that, he had to get that fun mm. fact in, too, because he is a racing fan. Listen, I, I'm just... <laughs> I'm just I'm I'm just letting you okay, know. For those of you who can't see, he's got a Formula One Ferrari uh, car shell all over it. Alrighty, go. until next time. Thank you so much for joining us between two chairs. Thank you.